Hey there, my name is Sean, and this is Grit, True Stories That Matter. Grit is a weekly podcast about stories, the contemporary personal narrative kind of story, and the people that craft and tell them. Why, you ask? Well, we want to feature these tellers and their stories, and also to help you, our listeners, craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories. Personal stories. Grit stories. We are nearing the end of season number three dedicated to the grit talks and best of. And today we have got two stories from the best of seven by seven, which was a virtual curated storytelling series. Our first story is by Cora Waring. Cora lives up in Massachusetts. And our second story is by Zach Stewart, who also lives up in Massachusetts. Thank you both for these stories. Check the show notes for upcoming events, including the Mental Health Happyish Hour, which is an open mic, and the 99 Second Grand Slam, season number six. Both of those events are on Sunday evenings in July, and we hope to see you there. A big thanks to all of you who listen to this podcast regularly or who have participated in grit stuff in the last two plus years, events and workshops and swap shops and the like. We really do appreciate your support. Hope you've gotten something out of it and hope you pay it forward. Okay, Cora and Zach, let's dive in. So it's a random day three summers ago and I am making dinner when my oldest child comes in and says, Mom, what's wrong with Chloe's eyes? Chloe is my youngest child, and she has the best imagination and the sweetest temperament, and I don't know what's wrong with her eyes. So I go over to the table where she's coloring, and I watch. And every few seconds, Chloe does this dramatic eye roll, like she is a teenager just throwing sass. But Chloe's only six. And she doesn't even seem to be aware that her eyes are rolling. She's not even pausing her coloring when it happens. And immediately, as her mom, I assume the worst, that Chloe must have a brain tumor or something because this looks crazy. And so I run and call the pediatrician, who tells me that Chloe probably just has a motor tick, but that I should take her to the emergency room just in case. So off we go to the emergency room and it's chaotic. And by the time we're seen, Chloe isn't just rolling her eyes. Now she's also working her jaw side to side and she's moving her tongue in and out of her cheek. And all of these things are happening all together at the same time. So it looks like her face is just performing this odd ballet of expression. And it scares me because I don't know what's happening with my child. But the doctor tells me that it's just motor tics, which are involuntary expressions people make sometimes, and that Chloe's the perfect age for them and that she will probably outgrow them. So what I need to do is take her home and just ignore it. And I don't like that answer, but that's what I do. Over the next few months, the motor tics get worse. Now, in addition to the others, there's a whole body flinch and a blink and a jump. And all of these things are happening all the time, all together. Sometimes I'll go check on Chloe when she's sleeping. And even then, her body is twitching and flinching and 
all of this just makes my anxiety skyrocket because I don't want these motor tics to bring any negative attention on my kid. But now when we go out in public, I feel like I should be carrying a giant sign that says nothing to see here, move along, because humans are curious creatures who love to stare at things like car accidents and children with motor tics. And I can't make anyone stop. So a couple more months go by and we are at the pediatrician for one of Chloe's siblings. And when we're there, the pediatrician says to me, you know, the motor tics Chloe has aren't like the usual ones that kids have. So I think we need to run some more tests to rule out epilepsy and Tourette's. And the minute she says Tourette's in my head, I am 13 years old down the street from my house, getting a haircut. You see, even at 13, I was already projecting the same idea of nothing to see here. Don't look at my parents' divorce. Don't look at my messy family. Don't look at my frizzy hair that I'm always trying to fix with haircuts. Just leave me alone. And this is why I'm at the hair salon. And the day I'm at the hair salon, I believe that the man who is cutting my hair has Tourette's. I say this because every few minutes he stops my haircut and goes through a series of motions and then spins in a circle and then starts to cut my hair again. Now, as an adult, I realize that I don't know if this man had Tourette's or motor tics or what, but at 13, I didn't know there was any difference between all those things. All I knew was that the kids at my school talked about Tourette's like it was the worst thing a person could have to not be in control of your body like that. So every time I go to get my hair cut, I would think to myself as this man cut my hair that maybe he had chosen the wrong profession. You know, maybe he shouldn't be wielding scissors around people's heads given his condition. Then I would go home and say this to the various adults in my life and they would chuckle. This would make me feel seen even though I knew it was wrong, that I was making a joke at someone else's expense. So now with Chloe, there are tests and more tests and blood draws, and we are not getting any answers. And the appointment with a neurologist is looming. And I am just getting more and more worked up about it because the world just seems less and less kind to my kid. There's a man who won't let Chloe go on the bouncy slide until she stops rolling her eyes. And there's a teacher at school who always yells at her for jumping in line. And no matter what I do, I can just not chase down all of these people. And my mind is becoming more and more consumed with the idea that if these motor tics are Tourette's, then it's never gonna go away. And it's gonna be the thing that defines her and it's gonna ruin her self-esteem and it's gonna follow her through life because there are so many jerks out there. And when I was 13, I was one of those jerks. And now it just makes me feel like the universe wants my kid to pay for something that I did long ago. So finally, the day comes for the neurologist appointment and the doctor walks into the room. And before she even opens her mouth, I just blurt out, I don't want it to be Tourette's. And the doctor's eyes are really kind. And she puts her hand on my arm and she says, before we even get started, I need you to know how many lovely people I know 
with Tourette's. And just like that, it was like the universe just smacked me across the face and said, Cora, it was never about you making fun of that man. It was about you only seeing his condition and not seeing him. And all I could think is, oh my God, all these years later, I am still carrying around this stigma of Tourette's and I don't even really know anything about it. And then I looked at Chloe and I thought, I can do better than this. And she deserves a mother who's better than this. And then I realized that no matter what Chloe had, we were just going to deal with it because we already were dealing with it. And I guess if people were going to talk, then they could talk because Chloe was my kid and I knew how lovely she was and no diagnosis was going to change that. I go through the revolving doors, past the concierge, up the 11 floors to Steve's apartment. Steve is this adorable resident, and he talks in this deadpan style where I can never tell if he's joking or not. He says that it's part of his charm. We had a FaceTime date a couple days before, and I was so awkward, and I thought it went so horrible that he'd never want to meet me. But here I am in his spacious one-bedroom that overlooks all of downtown Boston, and we're eating Chinese food while we're watching a reality television show. I'm having a hard time making conversation with Steve. I mean, his eyes are so bright and his skin is so clear, I find it intimidating. But I'm finding a way to be myself. Not too much myself. I'm balancing between first date me with real me, where I'm enough me, but just like not too much of me. And when I get stressed, I remember that he was the one who messaged me. Uh, Steve and I hadn't talked for five or six months. And with this dating app, once you matched and you didn't talk for more than two weeks, you went into this virtual graveyard. So it was Steve that dug me up out of that graveyard. Could he have dug up other boys? Sure, I don't really know Steve, but he chose me and that had to mean something. The show ends and I'm getting a little nervous. We're both giggling and we know what's coming next and we kiss. Steve is an incredible kisser. It's a pretty undervalued skill really, kissing, to optimize proportion of lip and mouth and tongue and negative space It's an art form all its own and definitely harder to teach than fucking, and he has it. We move to the bedroom, and it's thighs wrapped around ears and hands on heads, heads on hands, and the only thing that's constant is our sustained eye contact. Steve bites my neck, and I feel like I'm six months in the future with him. We're having our weekly takeout night, and we are celebrating my birthday in the park by his apartment. And I can tell when he's joking with the twinkle in his eye. But as we finish, I'm back in the present, but we're still kissing. And when I go to leave, we're still kissing. And I'm two steps out his apartment door when I realize that my wallet is missing. So I go back and I knock on the door and I take off my shoes and I explain and I look through the apartment and I overthrow couch cushions and I'm looking under the bed trying to find my wallet. 
And after about five or 10 minutes, he asked me to go and look in my car. And I go down to my car and I see a paid parking slip. And I know, I just know that if I paid for parking, I would not put my wallet back in my car. So I call him and go back up to his apartment. And we look again and I'm frantic. And he goes, I wish you looked in your car as thoroughly as you look through my apartment. And I apologize because I'm not trying to seem needy or desperate or like a psycho, but like in this capitalist society, like I need my wallet. So I'm not trying to make it a big deal, but I hope he understands the underlying urgency. He forgives me and he says he really just doesn't want me to think that I, he stole my wallet. And honestly, I didn't really think that until he said it. I mean, medical school is expensive and maybe he's just interested in me because of my credit card and my license. I give up looking and I say, text me if you end up finding it. And he goes, of course, that should go without saying. The next evening, he texts me and he says he finds it. It's weirdly under his workout bench, and he has no clue how it could have gotten there. That was where I took off my pants that night, so it made sense to me. I told him, don't worry about when to get it, when I should get it back. I mean, just let me know when you're free, because if I play my cards right and I wait long enough, I can turn this, this meetup into a second date. It's been eight days. I am not leaving my apartment and I'm consisting mainly on Grubhub. I mean, I'm trying to conserve gas and it's not like I have any money to buy groceries. I'm spending every day in my living room dancing to love songs, trying to predict our Instagram captions when we're together. I look through my friends' Instagram feeds and they don't post their significant others until about six months into dating. So it seems like I have some time. I screenshot messages between him and I and parcel them out to my friends, trying to figure out what does he mean? And I've noticed he's been quiet lately and my doubt starts creeping in. Was I interesting enough or was I funny enough? Was I too much? Or when I took my clothes off, was he disappointed? My friends try to make me feel better by pointing out my own self-involvement. Zach, he's training to be a doctor during a pandemic. Don't you think he could be a little busy? I don't listen. I wonder if he thought maybe I hid the wallet. Was I that insecure that I would hide this for him to text me back? I mean, it's possible. Like I could see myself doing it, like eyes blank, sliding it between the slats so that I would have this priceless calling card. I mean, I don't think I did it, but the more I think about it, the more it seems plausible. Sometime during this, my mom calls me. She's talking to me about a coworker she's mad at or a dog she wants to adopt, but honestly, I'm not paying attention. I am thinking about how her and my dad met. It was the 80s and they were in the Navy together. My mom's voluminous hair pushing her from 4'11 to 5'2 or 5'3. They were at a party and my dad was drunk and used a cheesy pickup line to hit on her. He was too scared to do it sober. And my mom went off on him. My dad was embarrassed and he was trying to find a way over the next couple of days to apologize. And some of the Hispanic guys on the ship said, you should apologize in Spanish because that's her native language. When he went up to her, he said, chupe mis cuevos. Um, She did not take kindly to him saying, suck my balls. Um, But that's what he was told to say. But after some explanation and some apology, they ended up going on their first date together. It was a bullfight in Spain and the rest is history. My mom hangs up on me because she can tell I'm daydreaming and not paying attention. 
That Saturday, I go to pick up my wallet in the lobby. I already know it's a bad sign because we're meeting in the lobby. I ask him how he's been doing. And Steve says, good, lazy, and gives me a two-finger salute as he heads back to the elevator. I say, see you around under my breath, knowing that if that happens, it's purely incidental. This part's usually hard, but I know that there'll be a guy who will make it clear that he likes me, that I won't have to spend time deciphering text messages with my friends. Someone where I can create a bond that's more resilient than a simple misunderstanding. Something like what my parents had. So I walk past the concierge and through the revolving doors, and I have everything that I need. Phone, wallet, and that key. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. Special thanks to Cora Waring and Zach Stewart, both who live up in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Thank you for crafting these and telling these and letting me use them here on The Grit Podcast. Check the show notes for upcoming events, including the Mental Health Happy Shower, which is an open mic, and the 99 Second Story Grand Slam. Both are in July. We hope we see you there. And if you could give us just a little love by rating and reviewing this podcast in Apple, we would appreciate it. And that is all for episode number 88. Boom.